one of the good gifts uh, that we have is the Word of God in a language that we can understand. Uh, So if you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, we'd invite you uh, to open with me to Romans chapter 14 as we consider uh, verses 15b through 23 this morning. Uh, If you saw that in the need to know, the 15b, and you're like, what is that? It just means that we're starting halfway through the verse. So there's, you know, two sentences in chapter 15. Pastor Tim covered the first half, which we would call 15a last week. We'll pick it up in 15b this week. Um, I do think that it is important for you to have your Bible open in front of you. If you have been coming here to Big Woods for any length of time, uh, hopefully you have come to realize that uh, here at Big Woods we uh, preach the kind of sermons that require the Bible open in front of you. Uh, And so I'm not going to try to play fast and loose with the text. I'm not going to do anything fancy. Um, I... I'm not that creative. Uh, and so if you have your Bible open in front of you, you can follow along and see where, where I'm coming up with whatever I'm saying, because uh, hopefully um, we're taking what we'd say this morning straight from the Word of God uh, as we uh, hope to rightly interpret and then apply so that we can live in light of what God's Word says. So hopefully you have turned to Romans chapter 14 by now. I'm going to start, and I am going to read all of verse 15, so you can follow along with me, starting in verse 15, again, Romans 14, we'll read through the end of the chapter. It says this, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it is my prayer that this morning... We would come before you, before your word in front of us, with ears to hear, with hearts that are ready to be shaped and molded by what you have revealed to us. 
And God, we are so thankful that we have this, your word, that we can read it, that we can know you in it, and that we can, by your spirit, understand and live in accordance with it. So we do just pray and ask, God, that you would be with us, not only as we hear your word preached this morning, but as we go from this place. God, we pray that we would not be hearers only, but doers. And so we just ask that you would be glorified in doing that here among us this morning. Strengthen the unity that we have through Christ and help us to see that, um, that what you have called us to, the spreading of the gospel among the nations, requires that we be united. Do that among us this morning, and we pray that you would spread your glory through us. Now open our eyes, God, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. We pray this in the name of Jesus with great thanksgiving. Amen. Unity in the church is a big deal to God. In fact, one of the few recorded prayers of Jesus is on this subject. In John 17, Jesus prays this for the church, and know that he is still praying it to this day. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you realize that that our oneness or our unity is something that God desires and prays for? Which may cause us to ask, why aren't we united in this way? And, And I think that this is a great question. And I also think that that is exactly what Paul is helping us within our passage this morning. So Brianna and I have had the privilege of, of doing premarital counseling for, for several couples. Uh, and we talk about many things surrounding the topic of unity. But we talk about unvoiced expectations that become the source of bitterness, which I think is a type of disunity. But we also talk about the necessary, necessary shift that takes place in a relationship. And we summarize it by saying it's the shift from me to we. And I think that this is unity depicted. We, instead of me, becomes the main way we talk and make decisions. And it's the responsibility of each person in the marriage to think of the other in the decisions they are making. That consideration is unity. And what Paul addresses in Romans 13 through 15 is what threatens unity in the body of Christ. 
that has been defined for us already by Robbie and Pastor Tim. So I'm not going to rehash all of that. But I will just let you know that I think the threat to unity is you. Specifically, you putting your own desires and preferences above those around you. In other words, the threat to unity is thinking in terms of me instead of we. And Paul labors to stress the fact of the importance of unity in the body of Christ because it is in fact a big deal to God. According to John 17 in the prayer of Jesus, our unity is one of the ways that we can put on display the greatness and glory of our God and His gospel. And, and just consider the book of Romans as a whole for a second. Chapters 1 to 11 mine the depths of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul covers things like justification by faith. He covers forgiveness and reconciliation and, and sanctification and, and, and many other deep theological categories that are necessary for Christians to understand. And this was necessary in the church at Rome because it was made up of Jews and Gentiles. And, and just as an understatement, Jews and Gentiles were not known for getting along. And so that might cause us to wonder, how can these two groups of people come together as one? I think the message of the book of Romans is that that unity comes through the saving message of the gospel. Only by being mutually united to Christ can Jews and Gentiles become brothers and sisters in the family of God. But I wonder, brothers and sisters at Big Woods Bible Church, if you realize that the same is true for us today. There are many different walks of life represented in this room, and, and there are many differences between us. But because of the unifying work of the Lord Jesus, we, though many, are one. And, and I think that that unity is worth fighting for. And, and I think that's what Romans 13 to 15 is all about. How we go about neutralizing threats to our unity. And so if I had to boil down the main point of Romans 13 to 15 to three words, I would say this. It's love over liberty. You see, love is the great neutralizer of disunity. Threats to our unity will only be overcome by our loving one another. You and I are to be driven by our love one for another, not the liberty we have in Christ. That, that is to say, what matters more to God in our, in our interactions with one another is not what we are free to do in Christ, but that we consider and love one another in our interactions. Which brings me to what I think is the main point of the section that we're considering this morning. Uh, for the wording of this main point, I'm indebted to, to Greg Gilbert. Uh, and he said this. Uh, the main point of Romans 14, 
15 to 23 is this. God values unity in the church more highly than he does your freedom, and you should too. So, so God values unity in the church more highly than he does your freedom, and you should too. In order for us to see this point in this passage, I'd like to draw it out in two ways. First, in verses 15 through 19, we will see that because God values unity more highly than your freedom, unity requires giving up legitimate freedoms for the sake of others. Second, in verses 20 to 23, we will see that valuing unity as highly as God does requires faith that God is in control. One final thing I would like to do before getting into the explanation of the passage is to define two words that I'm going to use frequently. First, I'm going to talk about conscience a lot. And I use Andy Nacelli's definition from his book, Conscience, great chapter, uh, great book title for a a book on conscience. If you want to go deeper, it was at one point on the bookshelf. If you need a copy, you can let me know. Or he also just released recently a children's book that is called That Little Voice in Your Head, if you're interested in that. But by conscience, what I mean is your consciousness or awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. So conscience is is your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. But then secondly, I'm going to talk about Christian liberty and freedom. And I think these are things which Scripture has no explicit moral command upon. So they are left up to an individual's biblically informed conscience. So those are two words, two phrases that I'm, I'm going to use a lot. And you'll have them hopefully in front of you in your notes so that when I say them, you'll know more specifically what I'm talking about. But with those things in mind, let's consider our first point this morning, which again is because God values unity more highly than your freedom, unity requires giving up legitimate freedoms for the sake of others. Everybody look at verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Paul teaches in this verse that exercising Christian liberty may be harmful to a brother or sister in Christ. How is this possible? How how is it that, that my eating could destroy a brother or sister in Christ? Imagine with me for a minute... That God was, was gracious to us as a body to allow someone from a Muslim background in our community to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And for the sake of this illustration, imagine that this person comes to faith at our Christmas Eve service. And, and when you become aware of this, you are so excited and you decide that you want to invite them into your home on New Year's Day to join your family and others from church, to feast and thank God for His faithfulness and anticipate it in the year to come. And this new brother in the Lord is also excited, and eventually in the course of conversation, he asks, what are we having for dinner? And you reply, 
Oh, we're having the most delicious meal. You'll love it. Pork and sauerkraut. New Year's Day comes, and this new brother in the Lord does not show up. Why? It's because his conscience does not allow him to eat pork because of the tradition that he has come out of just days before. Now, is it, is it wrong for you to eat pork? By no means. Sauerkraut is another matter all entirely. You are free in Christ to eat that pork, and you could even wrap it in bacon if you wanted. But what Paul teaches here in verse 15 is that it is wrong for you to invite a brother or sister to do something their conscience does not allow. But how could this destroy a brother or sister in Christ, though? Say he were to show up and eat the pork, all the while battling his conscience within, which is saying, don't eat it! But instead of listening to it, he silences it. Because he sees you eating and enjoying and figures, I should be able to as well. What is really taking place in that moment? Instead of this new brother going through the long, hard process of educating his conscience and reasoning and being taught from Scripture that because Jesus has filled the law and declared all things clean, I can now partake, he has instead been taught to ignore his conscience, to suppress it, and, and even to act against it. That is what will lead him to destruction as his conscience is less and less sensitive to the right and wrong because his conscience has been seared. I think many of you are aware that I'm a, a burn survivor. That 40% of my body has experienced third and fourth degree burns. Which means a good portion of my body has little to no feeling. And, and I have to, or maybe I should say I should, take extra precautions in cold weather to ensure those areas of my body are not further damaged by the cold weather. Because I can't feel that they are cold. In a sense, my body has been seared. And, and if more damage is done, future damage will be easier because I'll be less able to follow this safety mechanism, the nerves that God has given me that help me avoid damage. And, and I think Paul is trying to help us prevent that from happening in our brothers and sisters. Because as you've probably heard, Martin Luther once said to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. We are to take precautions that prevent damage and preserve unity so that the consciences of our brothers and sisters around us will not be seared. Andy Nacelli says it this way, conscience can be a warning system that, that saves them from great harm. If your finger brushes the top of a hot stove, your nervous system reflexively compels you to pull back your hand 
to avoid more pain and harm. Similarly, the guilt your conscience makes you feel should should lead you to turn from your sin to Jesus. God gave you that sense of guilt for your good. Don't ignore it. Don't suppress it. Your conscience, my, my conscience, acts in the same way that your nerves do. Telling you when to pull away from something. But ignoring it will lead to the pain of guilt. But inviting a brother or sister to do that, to ignore their conscience, will do the same in them. It leads to their pain. But it's also going to threaten our unity. Because unity is preserved when we act in love by considering how inviting others into our freedoms may sear the conscience of a brother or sister. So, so what would the loving thing be to do with this new brother or sister in Christ that you've invited to your New Year's Day feast? The right thing to do would be to give up your freedom to eat pork. You are free to eat the pork, but if you're inviting them in, maybe have turkey instead so that you can welcome them without pricking their conscience and thus preserve the unity of the body. Because even if, even if you're right about something, you must give it up if it will destroy a brother or sister in Christ. Because there's something more important than being right in the kingdom of God. It's acting in love. And, and in verses 16 and 17, I think this is what we see. So everyone look at 16 and 17 with me. It says, Do not... So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not our matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The thing that that you regard as good, or the thing that you are free in Christ to do, that someone else may not be, can easily become a source of division in our body. I think is what Paul means when he says is spoken of as evil. Paul is saying we should have a readiness to give up our liberty to preserve unity because God values unity more highly than freedom. You see, the kingdom of God is not a matter of what you are free in Christ to do. Or as Paul says, it's not a matter of eating and drinking. But it is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So Paul says simply, remember what matters most. Because there are more important things in the kingdom of God than what we are free to eat and drink, we should be quick to cast those aside to pursue the things of higher importance. It is precisely because your liberty matters so little compared to the unity of the church, that it allows you to give up liberty for the sake of unity. What matters more, as Paul says, is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What matters more is the shared righteousness that is yours because of the work of Christ, and the shared peace and joy that we have because of the Holy Spirit. 
You see, the kingdom of God is, is not about externals. It's about what the Lord Jesus makes us by faith. The internal righteousness that is ours in Him. That's the basis of our unity. And when we focus on that, instead of the many differences that divide us, we have what verse 18 says. So look at verse 18 with me. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. When we focus on what we share in Christ, we are acceptable to God and approved by men. Acceptable to God because we focus on what matters to Him. Approved by men because we are not fighting and divided, but loving and united. And as Jesus prays, that unity shows the power and glory of the God who brought us together. They will know we are Christians by our love, one for another. And so as we willingly lay down our freedoms, our unity is strengthened, our witness is upheld, and God is glorified as the source of all of it. Which is why Paul commands this sort of behavior in verse 19. Look at verse 19 with me. It says, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Because God values unity more highly than freedom, you may have to give up legitimate freedoms to preserve that unity. But by so doing, you are pursuing peace and you are seeking to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ instead of demanding your own rights. But how are we to do this? I have some some points of application from our first point this morning. Uh, Firstly, if we're going to, to know what we may need to give up, I think it's going to be required of us to know one another deeply enough to know where our consciences differ. See, I need to know what your conscience doesn't allow, and you need to know what my conscience doesn't allow. So that we can be willing to give those things up in the pursuit of unity. And, and in those areas, we work to pursue the unity instead of demanding our own freedom. But secondly, you, you should realize there are differing levels of disagreement in the body. Do you realize that there are things about which you and I disagree that have no standing either on my salvation or yours. But further, those things about which we disagree have no right to divide us. There are things you are right about that you do not need to argue people into agreement over. So, let me give you a grid to filter those things. Uh, Consider three categories for ethical behavior. Three categories for how Christians are to behave and not behave. These categories are command, wisdom, and liberty. These three categories should help you think through the importance of disagreement. 
Areas of command must be agreed upon. These are things that are clearly spelled out in Scripture. And to be reductionistic, we could say it has chapter and verse. Peter said it. Jesus said it. Paul said it. These are behaviors explicitly taken from Scripture that Christians must or must not do. Areas of wisdom, then, are not explicitly spelled out in Scripture, but are logically drawn out from Scripture, and, and doing or not doing is going to be better for you. So it's probably better for you to do them or to not do them. These often come as godly counsel from, from elders, from mentors, by listening to those wiser than you. The final category, then, is liberty. And that's what Paul is addressing in our passage this morning. They are areas in which your conscience determines what is right and wrong. What may be helpful in having these categories is is that they help you to know how to address a brother or sister in Christ on specific matters of disagreement. Someone who says they are a Christian but does not come to church, is disobeying a clear command from Hebrews 10. Someone who says uh, that, that they are able to do this and follow the commands of God, needs corrected. In, in those areas, they can be told clearly, you must stop this. Someone who says they are a Christian, but, but who disregards your counsel regarding how to properly pursue purity in a dating relationship may be a fool to disregard that advice, but they're not disobeying Scripture. Finally, someone who says they are a Christian, but disagrees with you on whether or not Christians can dance or, or insert whatever liberty you would want to put in there, is disagreeing at the level of Christian liberty. And as we move away from command and get to liberty, it changes how we address that person. Again, someone who's disobeying a command can be told, stop, repent. You need to stop doing what you're doing. While someone who disagrees at the level of liberty cannot be told to repent. Conversations at the level of liberty require less heat, so to speak, and more love. And so this means that there are things about which you are right, and a brother or sister is wrong, but you don't need to correct them. And that's hard, right? Because I, I don't know about you, but all of the opinions that I hold... I hold because I think I'm right. If I didn't think I'm right, I wouldn't have that opinion. But then, of course, I want everyone to agree with me because I'm right. But you and I must have a category for areas of the Christian life that we can disagree about and still be unified. If, If you're always looking for a fight or an area to correct others in, not only will that be exhausting for you and annoying to everyone else, but the unity that we are called to will suffer. 
And so instead, in areas of liberty, pursue love and trust God. For more on that, let's turn to our second point this morning as we look at verses 20 to 23. Our second point, again, is valuing unity as highly as God does requires faith that God is in control. Everybody look at verse 20. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Paul reiterates what he teaches in in 15b about liberty exercised without love. He's clear. Everything is clean. But eating clean food can be done sinfully. As verse 21 goes on to say. Look at, look at 21. It says, It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Freedom without love is a unity killer that needs to be killed. It is not good to do what would harm a brother or sister even if you are free in Christ to do it. And and if you want to value unity as highly as God does, there will be things that you abstain from for the sake of a brother or sister. But notice, Paul takes a side And he agrees that one side is right, the other side is wrong. He says, the food is indeed clean. But it could still be wrong for you to eat it. Just because you can, does not mean you should. And just because you do, does not mean I must. I may be wrong about a preference I have, but your primary responsibility is not to flaunt your freedom and try to convince me to do it too, but to love me in such a way that shows our unity is more important than whatever the freedom is. Because you can be right in the wrong way and cause me to stumble. Or you can let me be wrong and give up your freedom so that division does not happen. Now, it's probably not necessary to add a qualifier here, but remember, we're talking about areas of liberty, not command. You cannot let me be wrong about commands. But you also cannot pursue your liberty with greater fervency than you do our unity. And and if you want to value unity as highly as God does, you must be willing to give it up And trust God as you do. But not only that, look at verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Greg Gilbert summarizes this verse this way. He says, follow your conscience, but don't flaunt it. So so if, if your conscience is not pricked by eating do it but don't flaunt it you can eat meat without inviting into your freedom 
a weaker brother or sister who cannot eat meat and preserve the unity of the body. And, and what Paul says to that is, good for you. You are blessed because you are able to eat without passing judgment on yourself. What a great blessing it is for you to be able to partake without your conscience convicting you. Do it, but don't flaunt it. Keep it between you and God and do not feel the need to go around telling everyone how strong your conscience is. Because that maturity that allows you to eat should also allow you to do it without rubbing it in to others who cannot. But then in verse 23, Paul gives instructions to the, to the weak. Let's read verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What is most interesting to me about this verse is what Paul does not say. He does not say to the weak, the one who has doubts, just, just get over yourself already. Eat the meat. You're free to do it. It's clean. He doesn't even tell them that they're wrong, even though they are. And he doesn't tell them, you, you just need to change your mind. Just go ahead, eat it. And for that reason, I think that means that our unity requires faith that God is in control. The strong need to trust God to grow the weak. The weak need to trust God has the right to declare clean what they consider unclean. But both need to realize they are not to do anything that does not flow from faith. What we are to realize from this statement is that every part of our lives is to be lived in submission to Jesus. All of our thoughts and actions must increasingly come into conformity with our confession that Jesus is Lord of all. If you're able to refuse the Lordship of Christ in areas of conscience, you will continue on that path as your conscience is seared into areas of larger significance. And if there's something that you are doing and your conscience is pricked as you do it, you should not be doing it because you cannot do it in faith. So, so either stop doing it or educate your conscience. There may be areas in your life in which you do need to do exactly that. Educate your conscience. And I think in the passage, Paul seems to implicitly call the weak, the ones who doubt as they eat, to do just that. And so educating your conscience is simply a matter of bringing it into conformity with the truth. That happens by reading and meditating on Scripture. That happens by regularly sitting under the preaching of the Word and letting it shape and mold you. And guess what? God promises to do His work through His Word. Can you trust Him to do it? If there's a brother or sister 
who is wrong in some area of liberty, instead of arguing with them, can you trust God to change their mind? It may take a long time. And, and it, may, it may even take you giving up freedom. But unity is far more important than your freedom anyway. There are, there are some of you here as well who, who may be that weaker or brother or sister. I have two things to say to you. If your conscience is pricked by the behavior of a brother or sister, tell them. They need to know because we need to be unified. But secondly, if you become aware of an area in which uh, you hold what would be considered, considered the weak opinion, seek out others who can help you grow and ask God to grant you freedom of conscience in that area. I hope you know that unity is a big deal to God. There have been many challenges to that unity over the past few years. And, and I, think, I think we need to fight more than ever to have what God desires for us. The way we're going to do that is by focusing more on Jesus and less on ourselves. The only way anyone can do this is by trusting in the finished work of Jesus who paid the penalty for sin. And, and if you have never put your trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to do that right now. All it takes is recognizing and admitting to God that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and trusting that Jesus is the only Savior you need. He took the penalty that you deserve for your sin so that none of it is left for you. If you would like to know more about that, please come talk to me afterwards. Talk to the person you came with. Talk to someone sitting around you. And, and, and we would love to share with you what it means to follow Jesus. And, and if you're already trusting in Jesus, let me just encourage you, keep your eyes fixed on Him. And, and pursue what matters to Him. Which is the unity of his bride. We're going to have to trust God in this process. But our unity puts his glory on display. So let's focus there. The, the task that we've been called to. The church exists to make the glory of God known. And, and this task, spreading that glory among the nations. As people submit to Jesus as Lord. Will not be accomplished through us. If we are too busy focusing on me instead of we. But imagine if we were a church known for our unity. How glorious would that be? Glorious enough, I think, to accomplish the task we've been given. And so remember, God values unity more highly than he does your freedom. And you should too. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that the task you've given to us does not rely on our power to accomplish it. It comes 
only from the finished work of the Lord Jesus and the empowering of your spirit in us. God, help us to be united and in our unity to proclaim to the world that you have sent your Son. And so we ask that you would be glorified in doing that in and through us and that many would come to know Jesus as Lord because of it. We thank you and praise you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Aaron.